0: We are reading tonight from Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7, and you can find that on page 1,235 of the Church Bibles. So that's Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: I'm not going to lie to you, I'm slightly offended that Guy uh, invited me to speak to you this evening, and Rob to speak to you on your weekend away where there's full English breakfasts provided. Um, but. I'll take that up with Guy later. I'm pretty sure he owes me a full English breakfast now. Uh, but it is delightful to be with you uh, here this evening. I'm not sorry about that. Um, do keep your Bibles open at the passage that we just read. It'll be really helpful to have that open to uh, refer back to as we talk about it. And uh, let's pray before we come to have a look at it. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus spoke to the churches uh, through these seven letters. And thank you that he continues to speak to the church today through them. Pray that this evening your spirit would be at work in our hearts, uh, softening them to receive your word and to respond rightly in light of it. Amen. Well, uh, there was a woman called Lydia. Uh, she was a new convert to Christianity. She was blown away by the sheer goodness of the gospel. She was filled with joy at her newfound status before God and just marvelling at her newly acquired sense of peace it was wonderful, but the trouble was that none of her family were Christians. They at best tolerated her new faith and certainly didn't approve of it. And in harder moments, Lydia wondered if it was worth it, given the potential uh, relationship breakdowns that it might cause. And then there was a guy called Homer. Uh, He was known as a Christian at work he made a point of uh, of saying, talking about it when he arrived at his new job, mentioning Jesus so that people would know that he was his follower. Even uh, sometimes he took the opportunity to talk to colleagues about the gospel. But he suspected that it was as a direct result of that that he'd been passed over for promotion. He suspected his bosses questioned whether he had what it took to do the job, particularly in light of his unwillingness to take certain... Uh, ethically dubious actions to get the job done. Uh, another Christian, Helen, had a good friend who wasn't a Christian. In fact, they followed a different faith, and uh, they'd have conversations about this and they were really amicable conversations, but though she didn't waver in her faith, Helen did sometimes feel a l- little inferior because uh, her friend, an academic, was full of really smart and intellectual arguments as to why their religion was uh, right and Helen's was wrong. Helen knew the gospel, but she didn't have impressive-sounding apologetic arguments to back it up. And then there was Simon. Uh, he loved the church. Uh, it meant so much to him to be part of a fellowship of believers. He would have loved to have been here uh, this evening sharing in communion with us all. But he couldn't help sometimes feeling disheartened by the size of the church. Uh, Even though it felt like a good gathering when they met together, given the number of people in the city, it was very small indeed. And he wondered whether they could ever make a difference. I wonder if you identify uh, with Lydia or Homer or Helen or Simon, or maybe all four of them. Other than uh, being completely made up by me, something that they all have in common is that they were all uh, Christians in the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor at the end of the first century AD, and they were all in desperate need of hearing what Jesus had to say to them uh, through his letter to the church in Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. The church in Philadelphia as a whole needed to know where ultimate authority lay, to be given present hope and to be assured, uh, sorry, to be given present comfort and assured of future hope. That's what we're going to spend our time looking at this evening. Ultimate authority, present comfort, and future hope. If you've uh, been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that you've been going through this series uh, in the letters to the churches in Revelation. Each one is a bit like a spiritual MOT for the church, How is the church doing? What's commendable? Uh, What needs fixing? Numbers are something that's really important in the book of Revelation. And maybe the reason that there are seven letters to seven churches is that often the number seven represents completeness and wholeness. If that's the case, then these seven churches, though they were actually churches at the time in their own rights, also represent the church as a whole. These are letters for the whole church, listen in on. So as we come to the sixth of the seven letters, it's as relevant for St. Michael's Chester Square as it was for St. Michael's Philadelphia. So let's listen into this letter and see what it has to say to us today, as well as to them then. Firstly, ultimate authority. You see it in verse 7. Each of these seven letters begins with information about the one who's sending the letter, uh, a description of Jesus. And so far, those descriptions are taken from a wonderful vision uh, that John has of Jesus at the beginning uh, of Revelation in chapter 1. That's been the case so far. Uh, But the description we get here at the beginning of the letter to the Philadelphians isn't taken from Revelation chapter 1. It's taken from a lot earlier in the Bible. In fact, it's taken from way back uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 22. Have a look down at at verse uh, 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, "'These are the words of him who is holy and true, "'who holds the key of David. "'What he opens, no one can shut,' And what he shuts, no one can open. Again, this isn't from the beginning of Revelation. It's from all the way back um, in, in Isaiah chapter 22. It's from a prophecy against a guy called Shebna, who was the palace administrator in Jerusalem at the time. Let me read from, chapter, uh, from verse 20 of chapter 22 of Isaiah. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Helkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him, and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those living in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now You could be forgiven, uh, I guess for never having heard of eliakim in fact, arguably he 's not even the most important Eliakim in the Bible but he does point us to Jesus. He was given the key to the house of David. He had the power to open and shut the doors to say who was in and who was out. That passage goes on to talk about how he was firmly established. And of course, he wouldn't hold his position forever, but he points us to someone who would. Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven where he's been given the key to the house of David, the key to his father's kingdom. When he opens a door, it stays open. When he shuts a door, it stays shut. He says who can come in and who can't. He has ultimate authority and what's more, he always will. His position is secure and permanent. How wonderful for the Philadelphian church to know that the one speaking to them has absolute authority. They were weak in all kinds of ways. Uh, Not only are we told uh, later on in our passage in verse 8 that they have little strength, but the very foundations of their city were lacking in strength. They lived in an area that was prone to terrible earthquakes, Less than a hundred years previously, there'd been an earthquake so bad that it had decimated the city and it had to be rebuilt. Their existence was precarious in all kinds of ways, yet the one who spoke to them had ultimate authority. And it's the same for us today. We live in a world where we hear of terrible bushfires, of huge plagues of locusts, and terrible viruses spreading. And as a church, we may feel like we're lacking in strength, uh, like we're outnumbered. I don't know how many people live in the parish of St. Michael's Chester Square, but I'm sure that it's many thousands more than we have gathered here this evening. And what's more, the culture that we live in increasingly disagrees with and disapproves of what the Bible says. Our situation may well feel precarious. Yet we know that if we're listening into Jesus, we're listening into the one who has ultimate authority. What he says goes, and it always will. And wonderfully, what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia gives them great comfort in the present and sure hope for the future. Let's have a look at first at present comfort. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 8, "I know your deeds. Uh, He'd said the very same thing previously to the churches in Ephesus and Thyatira and Sardis. And for each of those churches, it had been at least mixed, if not downright bad news. Jesus knew their deeds, and their deeds left something to be desired. Sometimes it's a really scary thing to have people know what you've done. Mark Twain once said, I once sent a dozen of my friends a telegram saying, flee at once, all is discovered. They all left town immediately. I know your deeds could be a very scary statement indeed, couldn't it? But that's not the case for the church in Philadelphia. For them, Jesus knowing their deeds is a comfort to them because their deeds have been good. Later in verse 8, he says to them, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Their deeds have been good, and Jesus knows it. And I think that's a comfort to them uh, right from the beginning. If you're anything like me, you quite want someone to know when you've done something good. Uh, I can't clean a room in our house without being desperate for my wife to come home so I can say, look at this, I've done something great. And I wonder if it was a little bit similar for the Christians in Philadelphia. Sometimes they they, uh, they they were doing the right thing, but I wonder if they sometimes wondered whether anyone knew that they were, whether there was really any point. It's unclear exactly what Jesus means by saying that they have little strength. Uh, maybe they were few in number, or maybe most of the Christians who made up the church were of a lower social class. Whatever it was, I'd have thought that there might have been times when they might have thought, is it really worth it? No one seems to see or acknowledge the work I'm doing what is the point? But Jesus knew their deeds. Of course, when we when we do good deeds for Jesus, it's not to earn um, his, his love. He's given it to us, and we are doing these deeds in response. Um, but he sees them. He knows, even when it seems like no one else does. Whether it was Lydia facing family disapproval or Homer struggling to be a Christian at work or Helen trying to stand up to her non-Christian friend's intelligence... Or Simon disheartened by the size of the church, or us today identifying with any of them, or in any situation we find ourselves uh, in, uh, trying perhaps seemingly unnoticed to live for Jesus. Jesus says, I know your deeds. There's comfort in that alone, I think, but also in what he says to them in light of it. Back at the beginning of verse eight, I know your deeds see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Given the way Jesus describes himself in the opening lines of this letter uh, to the church in Philadelphia, it seems that this open door he's placed in front of the church is the door of salvation. He has the keys to the kingdom. He has authority over who enters, and uh, he has given them permanent access He's placed before them an open door that no one can shut. He knows their deeds and he's given them permanent, permanent citizenship in the kingdom of God. This must have been a wonderful comfort to them because there would have been other people in Philadelphia at the time who said that they weren't really God's people at all, that they didn't have citizenship in heaven. In verse 9, Jesus speaks of those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews but are not Those who belonged to the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia no doubt thought that the Christians at best constituted a heretical sect. They'd have thought that they weren't really part of God's people. But Jesus says, no. They say they are Jews, but they're not real Jews. They are not the real people of God. That's you, the church. You're the ones who are the real people of God. Those who've acknowledged that the Jewish Messiah has come, That he lived and died and rose and now reigns with ultimate authority. I've placed before you an open door that no one can close. We can take comfort in the same promise. As we strive to keep Jesus' words and not deny his name, we can take comfort in the truth that however difficult it might get, Jesus has placed before us an open door that no one can close. The door that allows us entry into God's kingdom. ...and assures us citizenship there. Um, Though given the description of Jesus at the beginning of the passage... ...and what we're going to see at the end of the passage... ...I'm convinced that the primary meaning of this uh, open door... ...is that of the door of salvation. The Philadelphians uh, guaranteed entry into God's kingdom. But it's also been suggested that this door could be the door of opportunity. And I think that that could well be a kind of secondary meaning uh, for this door... Uh, Paul speaks of the open door of opportunity often. For example, in 1 Corinthians he writes, a great door of effective work has been opened to me. And in Colossians he writes, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And it's true that Philadelphia was perfectly positioned for the spread of the gospel. It's been said of that city, The intention of the city's founder in the second century BC had been to make it a center for the Greco-Asiatic civilization and a means for spreading the Greek language and manners in the eastern parts of Lydia and Phrygia. It was a missionary city from the beginning. If uh, there's a sense in which the door uh, is a door of opportunity as well as a door of salvation, then that too is a comfort to the Philadelphian church an encouragement from Jesus himself to carry on with their deeds, um, of which he is aware, to know that it wasn't just their own steam that they were working under, but that Jesus himself, the one with ultimate authority, was holding wide a door of opportunity for them as they went about trying to spread the gospel and advance his kingdom. Jesus goes on to promise that the very ones who denied their membership of God's uh, kingdom would see how mistaken they are verse 9 says this I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews though they are not but a liars I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you God promised his old testament people that those who oppressed them would eventually bow down before them and call them the city of the Lord and I guess the philadelphian Jews were still holding on to this promise from the old testament But it turns out that the fulfillment of it would be in their acknowledgement of the followers of Jesus as the real people of God whom he loved. For some of them, that uh, may have happened as they converted to Christianity, as the Philadelphian church acted on the opportunities that Jesus was providing for them. But it will happen once and for all when Jesus returns and is acknowledged by all as the one with ultimate authority. And Jesus promises to keep his people until then. Verse 10 says, Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world to test those who live on the earth. Notice that there's a keeping and a being kept here. Jesus' uh, people keep his commands, and he keeps them, uh, bringing them through whatever trouble will come. It's a mutual keeping, uh, but it's not an equal keeping. It's kind of like when a child and uh, a parent are crossing the road holding hands together. They're both actively holding on to each other's hands, but it's really the child's hand that is secure in the hand of the parent. There's comfort for the Philadelphians here, and comfort again uh, for us today if we're followers of Jesus. The comfort that Jesus knows our service of him that he's assured us a place in God's kingdom and that he'll keep us until he comes again when everyone will see him for who he is. There's great comfort for us in the present and up until Jesus returns but there's also great hope for us following on from that. It's our final point, future hope. I'm coming soon, says Jesus at the beginning of verse 11. Uh, like with I Know Your Deeds earlier on in our passage, uh, Jesus had said, I'm coming soon already to the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis, and there was a note of threat uh, when he said it to those churches. It wasn't good news that Jesus was coming soon because they weren't ready for him. But for the church in Philadelphia, again, it was great news. Their faithfulness to Jesus meant that they could look forward to his coming again with eager anticipation. And we see why uh, in verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take away your crown. They who overcome will be, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will they leave it. What an amazing future hope Those who lived as outcasts in the world in the new creation after Jesus' return will be welcomed into God's house and their residence there will be stable and permanent. Jesus uses the imagery of pillars and that must have been a wonderful thought uh, for people who never knew when the next earthquake would hit uh, and experienced opposition from their faith from all around them. To look forward to a time when they would be as stable as pillars in the temple of God and they would never have to leave. And they'd not only be welcomed in, uh, they would belong there as well. Jesus goes on, I will write on them the name of my God and the city and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. It turns out that Jesus has not only the keys uh, to the house of David, but he also seems to have a great big permanent marker pen. Perhaps you've seen the, the Toy Story films uh, where the toys have their owners' names uh, written on the soles of their shoes. And when they see uh, that name of the child that owns them, they are reminded that they are loved, uh, that they belong somewhere, uh, even that they have a purpose. And it's similar here, I think. In the new creation, Jesus' people will belong to the extent that they will have not just one but three names written on them. I suspect it's probably metaphorically written on them, but I'm totally open to it being the real thing. Uh, They have the name of God, their father, showing that they belong to him. The name of the city of God, showing that they belong to the people of God. And Jesus' new name written on them. Having not denied his name in this world, they'll be marked with his new name in the next. They'll know him on a whole new level and be marked as his forever. Then there will be wonderful welcome, security and stability and belonging for the Philadelphian church. It's an amazing future hope that should have helped them uh, in their present carrying on with patient endurance, as Jesus instructs. And again, it's the same for us today. No doubt there will be times when we identify with the Philadelphians, when though we strive to keep Jesus' word and uh, and not deny his name, it's difficult to do so. When it threatens to damage relationships or when others look down on us for it or when brainy secular humanists question our intelligence, when the work of the church looks meager and ineffectual. But we can take comfort and have hope even then. There's always the uh, danger uh, with passages like this in the Bible, I think, in God's word, that when people hear it, instead of the weak uh, being comforted and the comfortable being challenged, it will have the opposite effect, and the comfortable will feel more comfortable, and the weak will feel entirely hopeless. Uh, but don't let that, the ca- that be the case here with this passage. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, yet never keep his word, and regularly deny his name, if we're not patiently enduring, then we can't find comfort here in this passage. We need to read the letter to the uh, Philadelphians alongside the other six churches and take the challenges uh, to them where that's appropriate. And in fact, I suspect that it's the case for all of us that there will be times when we do need uh, those challenges, at least on some level. But I suspect that there's also time uh, for at least almost all of us when we do feel the weakness of the Philadelphians, when we are trying to follow Jesus, but for whatever reason, it's hard to do so. And when that's the case, there is great comfort for us here. We can know that the one with ultimate authority is with us, giving us present comfort and future hope, uh, making open the door to salvation and promising to be with us and keep us until he comes again to give us permanent welcome and belonging with him in eternity. Uh, Perhaps you're here this evening and you wouldn't consider yourself uh, a follower of Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And uh, thank you very much for, for listening in. But perhaps there has been something here that struck a chord with you as well. Perhaps you do sometimes feel helplessness in the face of all that's going on in the world, or feel unnoticed, like life is sometimes hard and no, one, no one's noticing it. Or Perhaps you don't feel any of those things, you feel completely happy and secure with your life, but you're uncertain of what will happen after this life, after death. Know that the Bible says that there is someone with ultimate authority who's ready to hold open the door of salvation to you as well, to give you comfort now and hope in the future. It's worth finding out about him just on the off chance that that is actually true. We'll finish uh, with the words of Jesus in verse 13. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.